Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And as usual, if you've got questions that arise in your heart or your mind or even your spirit, I would love for you to send us those questions. Uh, here's the two ways you can send us those questions. I was kind of being facetious and funny, yes, but we still love to see your questions come in. Uh, you can email us. The email address is info at grove.church. Uh, make sure to put in the subject line, a Let's Read the Bible podcast question, a podcast or a question for Evan and Aaron, whatever works, but just make sure it gets to us. Uh, or you can direct message our Grove Church Facebook page. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. You can DM us there and we get the questions as well. Well, beloved listeners, it is with a heavy heart that... I Evan, you're start. a liar. It's true. <laughs> we're taught, we're wrapping up Job today, which I'm really excited about. But to you, he's also sad too. To you, Job, I have been your Eliphaz listeners, your Bildad, your Zophar. Where last week I said that you would see our faces, and that was not true. Last week I said that we were launching a new podcast, which is also sadly untrue. Now both those things are still <laughs> happening, but the uh, we just delayed the the launch date of them. Yeah, so the studio we ran into some snags of getting it ready, and so rather than launch it kind of halfway, we're gonna, we're going to wait a little bit to make sure it happens. So it it will still be happening, listeners, but it's not going to be. If you were looking for it this week, and you're like, hey, where is it? I the, thought I was supposed to see your faces this week. It's because we're liars, and I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, more details to come. I don't have an exact launch. It's not going to be like forever away, but uh, it's going to be like probably a few weeks at least. So. Yeah, coming out of Easter, this is this is the biggest thing. Coming out of Easter, there were some very strategic conversations that were happening that I was a part of, so I didn't get to come and help get the studio set up. We took a day off after, the, after Easter Sunday because there was a lot of work going into Easter, and so as a staff, we always just kind of give the day. Uh, and so it's just a short week, uh, and so we didn't have the time to turn the studio around to get it ready and primed for filming, so that way when you did see us, it would be aesthetically pleasing to your eyes as well. So yeah. we may not be aesthetically pleasing, but the environment will be so. Well, I told Eli, I was like, hey, here's what we could put together for a temporary one. And he just laughed at me and I was like, oh, okay, apparently. Yeah. So that that's a good indicator too. So I'm not known as an aesthetic. It's coming. Minded. We promise we're going to be launching the vodcast version of this podcast. And I'm excited to be a part of that, but uh, we want to do it well. So it just means a little bit of a delay. So thank you for your patience. Sorry for, I guess, misleading you and lying to you. That was not our intent just to being deceivers. Um, and and stay tuned for more details. But appreciate you. All right. Thanks well, for staying with us, listeners. Speaking of people who aren't deceivers, let's talk about Job. <laughs> so we have three. So we talked about last week. We wrapped up the first half of Job. We went through our three cycles of speeches, which is kind of you know it's, it's convenient that the book of Job breaks down this way because it's three cycles of speeches of three speakers, and then we get a little interlude, and now we have three monologues. So it's going to be Job talking for a long time then Elihu talking for a long time, and then Yahweh himself talking for a long time. So we're going to go a little bit chapter by chapter. Um, as I was writing, I realized that I was writing a lot, so this might be a little bit, but hopefully, you know, I just, I love the book. So, and we're going to, when we're done after this week, so hopefully we just kind of, you know, bear, bear with us listeners. Well, and this week even, we're going to be hitting the rest of Job and then f- not finishing the book of Psalms, but ending, doing the ending portion of the book of Psalms. That's right. it for the reading this week. Uh, and so we're, we're going to spend some time in Job today to wrap it all up. And then we'll, we'll do some quick hitters with Psalms and then that'll be the podcast. But mm-hmm. all right. Well, Job's final monologue can be broken up into three sections. Now they're not their own separate speeches because there's not a pause point. So it is supposed to be one speech, but in the chapter divisions of 29, 30 and 31, you can see how he's attacking different themes a little bit. So in chapter 29, it's a lament that explores the life that Job had, and it, it's and, and also kind of deals with a new theme that we haven't really dealt with. It's the loss of what could have been, which isn't necessarily that something that Job has brought up all that much before. Um, but to give you an idea, this is the first few verses of that. It says, "Oh, that I were." As in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through the darkness. As I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all all around me, which is a really sad line, uh, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Now, the the wash with butter thing, (laughs) I did look that up when I was writing, because I was like, what the heck is this? Uh, it's just butter's expensive. So it's, oh, he's saying like he had a lot of, yeah, you know, he was wealthy. He was wealthy. Yeah, exactly. So 
That's funny. If you would have seen my face, not to rebring that up, but you would have. You that's why Evan said something face. about butter. Because uh, I was just like, what the? Like, and I gave the what the face. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's a, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, but that whole speech is talking about really how he has been honored. And so he would say, like, I'd walk into the city and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but the young men would stand up when I, when I approached them, when I walked into the councils, they would all be silent. When I gave my judgment, they would all listen to me. People respect him. It's kind of like his, he's describing what his life was like before his calamity. And then in chapter 30, you'll notice it switches where he stops talking about what his life was. And now he's talking about the way his life is now. So to give you kind of a taste of that, he goes, but now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Fun fact really quick about that verse. That is the only verse in the entire Bible that is even remotely positive about dogs. (laughs) And it's really not even that positive, but he's saying like, hey, they're worse than the dogs. Every other verse in the Bible is just like, yeah, dogs are the worst. So, um, Interesting. Yeah. You know, I feel like... They kind of, the biblical authors, they got a little bit wrong there because dogs are awesome. But, you know, I guess back then maybe they were just a bunch of – they, they hadn't know. tamed them yet. Who knows? Anyway, but in chapter uh, – sorry, verse 2 it goes, uh, What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? Through want and hard hunger they gnaw at the dry ground. By night in waste and desolation they pick salt wort and they leave in the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of torrents they must dwell in the holes of the earth and and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together, a senseless, nameless brood. They have been wiped out of the land. And so Job, he describes these people who are the kind of the lowest of the low. And he's saying, those are the people who laugh at me now. So Job goes from a really high exalted position to all of a sudden people who, uh, again, he, he said he wouldn't even set over the dogs of his field. Uh, those are the people who are mocking him now. And then chapter 31 is really Job's final defense. Um, so, And these are also practically Job's final words. Um, they're not actually his last words because we're going to see him speak and we're actually going to read the last things he truly says. But as far as his big speeches where he's laying out his arguments, this is the last thing that Job is going to say. Um, and then the chapter is set up. It's kind of interesting because this is also a, a motif that we haven't seen yet. It's set up as a bunch of if-then statements. And really it's all about... If Job is saying, if I am guilty of these things that you have accused me of, then let this happen to me. So as you read it, that's what's happening, right? Job is giving a um, a defense of who he is. He's giving a defense of his character. And then he's saying, if I'm lying, I am calling down these curses upon me. And so this is how he wraps it up. And we'll read the last 10 verses or so. It says, if I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgressions as others as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. It would bind it, I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. As a prince, I would approach him. If my land cried out against me and its furrows had wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and let foul weeds instead of barley. And then it says the words of Job are ended. So that kind of gives you an idea where he's defending his character. And then he finally says, he 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 asks for the same thing that he's really been asking for this whole time. He wants to stand before God and give his defense. And so Job is very much in the mode of, listen, I'm right. What has happened to me is not right. What has happened to me is evil. And and God needs to know about this. And that's where Job leaves off his argument. All right, well, let's see how that goes for him. <laughs> so first we're going to get to Elihu. Uh, Elihu, I, I love Elihu because I just think he's a fascinating character. Um, mostly because he's really controversial. So 
I read a decent chunk of commentaries just like uh, prepping through Job. And it's pretty much an even split on like half the commentaries are like, yeah, he's a really pompous, arrogant guy who's just like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And the other commentaries are like, no, he's like a John the Baptist character who is preparing the way for Yahweh's answer. Um, and there's really no middle ground. Like there's never, a, there's never, yeah, there's never anyone who's like, yeah, Elihu, he's fine. Um, it's either like he's this preparatory character for God, or he's just a fourth friend who even, who continues to put down Job even more. Um, I very much land on the, he's a John the Baptist style character. Not that, and he, not that he's without, without faults, cause he's definitely, he's a very pompous guy, but I think he's right. Um, not to be pompous, but I think he's right in what he says. So you're saying John the Baptist figure in the sense that he's preparing the way for God's answer, Yahweh's reply to right. Job, not necessarily the the character and person of John the Baptist. Yes. Just, John, to, be, just to be clear. Yeah. John the Baptist is a better man, but he, Elihu fills a similar role Got in it. the story. Um, and so let's talk, let's talk about him for a little bit. Uh, he, we're introduced to him. He's the final human character of the story. We don't know really much about him because he's, he might've been one of Job's friends who was really young. And so mm-hmm. he came with the other three friends and sat with Job and then he's let them speak fully before he's wanted to jump in. Um, he could be just someone from town who came in and he's like listening to the debates and he's just kind of interested in it. Um, I've even heard it said that he was a servant, which I, I don't know if I buy, but it's it's possible there as well. All we know is that he's young and because he says that the reason he had not spoken is because he was younger than all of the other friends and you know, back in, especially back in that culture, you would let the eldest speak first, and then you would go in descending order before you took your turn to speak. It was very disrespectful to jump in when you were young. Uh, but here's how we're introduced to him. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these men, he burned with so he burned with anger. I think he's a little angry, guys. I think, you know, something tells me that Elihu is burning with anger right now. He might now. be a little bit upset. Okay. So when you read the speech, here's the deal. Elihu's first speech, he spends way too much freaking time uh, beating around the bush and talking about how he has the right to speak. So apparently, I don't know, he must have been really self-conscious or, I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe his pride and pomp is kind of a cover for him being like, well, you know, I know you don't want me to speak, but yeah, seriously, he starts in 32 like right after that verse. So he starts in 32.6 is when his speech begins. And he doesn't actually make a point until 33.8. So it's like a full chapter and then some change of him just being like, lo, Job, listen to me for I am the... And he just kind of goes through the whole thing. It's awesome. So, um, but I was like, I, I, I was thinking about how um, one of my one of my great character flaws is I have been known to tell people to hurry up when they're talking. And so I haven't done it as much anymore just because like, Ashley will kick me in the leg, like when I do. Good that. job, Ashley. Yeah, good job, because because I, I am being rude. But like another reason why you are way better because of her. You're it's, you're not you're not wrong, um, <laughs> but like I'm just I'm a horribly impatient person when it comes to conversations, and so like even while I'm reading this, like as as I'm reading the Halihu chapters, I'm imagining being Job and just like, dude, just tell me like just tell me what you want to say. Like you don't need to beat around the bush this much. Um, anyway, so from that point, so once we get to thirty three eight. He gives a quick recap of what Job has said, and then he refutes it. This is what he does in his first three speeches. So his first three monologues are going to be, Job, you have said X. Here's my reply to that. Um, the difference between Elihu and Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far is he really doesn't put words in Job's mouth. Um, he gives a pretty accurate picture of what Job's argument has been, whereas the friends are going to they take what Job said and they twist it to be something much worse, whereas Elihu's like, hey, here's the claim that you've made. Now let's refute that. So that's another reason I think he's not the same as the other friends. Um, In this case, it's that the first claim is that Job is pure and without sin, and yet God has made him his enemy. So Job's argument is that I've done nothing to deserve this suffering, and yet God treats me as an enemy, which Job has for sure said throughout the speeches. Um, Elihu then begins to show how Yahweh could be speaking to Job in ways that he does not perceive. So remember, one of the big issues that Job is walking through is that he's crying out to God and he's being met with nothing but silence. Well, Elihu's argument is not necessarily. Um, He talks about how God can speak through dreams 
which is something that we see all throughout the Old Testament and even in the book of Job, right? Because Elihu, not Elihu, uh, Eliphaz talks about how um, he had been visited by a dream and a vision and God had revealed some truth to him. Whether or not you believe that, it's at least showing that he's aware that this can happen. Uh, but the other one is even more interesting. Uh, Elihu talks about the idea that pain could be used by God to communicate something to Job. And this is something that no other character has brought up. And it's going to be a bigger theme in his next speech, but he's talking about how, Job, have you ever thought to take a moment during your pain, during your suffering, and think about what could God be telling me through this? So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's it's, totally interesting. It's really interesting. And then finally, Elihu imagines an angel toward the end. Um, Let's just see, you know, let's hear him talk about this angel and let's see if he sounds familiar to you. Uh, So he goes, uh, starting in 3323, if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him. And he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh be found, let his, let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it is not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. So this one, like you just want to grab Elihu and say like, like you're talking about Jesus. Yeah, like, right. and obviously he doesn't know and no one at this time knows that that is the full plan. But it, Elihu's like, yeah, what if, you know, what if there was an angel who found a ransom and saved you from your sin? And then really what he could be saying is like, what if God became man and paid the ransom and saved you from your sin? Like it's real close to the gospel and it's just tucked away in the parts of Job that we all ignore because we don't, you know, no one talks about the Elihu chapters because it's like right before the God chapters. Why even, <laughs> why even bring that guy up? It's overshadowed. Literally. Oh man. But I, I love that passage. Um, Elihu's second monologue, he once again flips the arguments that we have seen so far on their head. So in this, I kind of broke it down like this. All of the arguments or all of the speeches beforehand have been dealing with what is the nature of Job's suffering. And so there's been four possible answers that have been put forward. So number one, Yahweh has allowed evil to happen to Job. So that's a claim that's been made. Number two, Yahweh was unaware of the evil being done against Job is another possibility. Number three, Yahweh himself committed evil against Job, which is brought up. And then four, what happened to Job was from Yahweh and it was deserved. So it wasn't evil. And that's the argument of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. So Elihu introduces a fifth option. Uh, What has happened to Job is from Yahweh and it's not evil, but also not deserved. So it's kind of, and and here's the thing, like he's, he's right. So like the suffering itself is not evil because God absolutely allows it to happen and it serves to further, um, his glory. That's not to say it's not painful, which it absolutely is. But I think his point is that, or the the point that we can take from reading this is that evil does not mean painful. Those two, those are not synonyms. And so I think that's an important thing to talk about. Um, and then he ends this, he, he ends his second speech with this nugget that I said, we should just, you know, tuck it away for later. Um, it says, men of understanding will say to me, and the wise man who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge and his words are without insight. I wonder if that's going to come up here in the next chapter. (laughs) Uh, Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men, for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Hmm. Anyway, so Job's or Elihu's third monologue, uh, chapter thirty-five. It's Elihu's shortest speech. Um, For time's sake, because we're kind of we're talking about a lot today, I'll just say it's about how God does not approve of empty religion, which is a really interesting thing. And his whole point is. Uh, those who cry out to God only in times of pain are not going to be heard because they don't actually have a true relationship with God. Um, I don't think this applies directly to Job because we know that he has a strong relationship with God before and after, but I think it's getting again at that temptation of the Satan where it's saying, um, does Job only serve God for what he for what he gets out of it? And then Elihu's fourth monologue is... Um, it's very different from the others. So it doesn't follow that same, Job, here's what you've said, 
and now here's my rebuttal to it. Um, rather, he just begins to kind of summarize his own argument. And then without a doubt or Tobit, as I put in my notes, because apparently autocorrect is just a jerk. Um, <laughs> this is my favorite section of all the Elihu speeches in chapter 37. So the second chapter of his final reply. Um, and because I didn't realize that at first I kind of read this as like, oh, we could imagine this happening and it'd be kind of cool. And then the more and more I read it, the more and more I realized, no, it's actually happening. Like this isn't like poetic language. So as Elihu begins to speak, a storm begins to brew. And so this just feels so cinematic to me. Evan like, has a flair and a desire for the dramatic. Oh yeah, he would say cinematic, but it's dramatic. He like he likes the drama uh, that that can be evoked cinematically speaking. Well, I just think like this speech hits so different if you're imagining the wind starting to change and all of a sudden it's picking up and there's thunder in the background and the sky is getting darker and then as he's speaking it just continues to grow Storm and grow. Rolls in. Oh my gosh! And so he like he goes like this. He starts it off with. At this also my heart trembles and it leaps out of place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice, the rumbling that comes from his mouth. And so he's describing the distant thunder. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. So he's describing lightning that's happening. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightning when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour, he seals upon the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. And there we can imagine, right? There's animals around and they're starting to run away from the storm. Uh, From his chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around by his guidance to accomplish all that he has, all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for the correction or for his own love, he caught or for love, he causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge, you whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind? Can you like him spread out the skies as uh, hard as a cast of metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case to be in darkness. And then just imagine at this point, like it's it, like a whirlwind all around, like it's blowing their robes completely. They're having to hold on. And it says, shall it be told him that I would speak? Did ever a man wish that he would be swallowed up? And now no one looks on the light when it's bright in its skies, when the wind has passed and cleared him. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. And back then the north is like the... um. It's the euphemism for where the gods live. So when you say out of the north, he just means the glory of God is approaching. Um, The almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in his own conceit. And then the next verse is, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, like, I just love, I love that passage so much because it's just Elihu describing the glory of God, um, particularly in storms. And it just feels so, I don't know, I, just, I, can, I can imagine like the Job movie and that's like the, the cli- almost the climactic moment. Obviously, God speaking is the climactic moment, but the lead up, the end of the rising action before we get to the climax is just the storm gathering, Elihu kind of looking a little crazy and talking about the glory of God. And then as soon as Elihu's done st- speaking, you hear the voice of Yahweh come out of the whirlwind. Ah, that's pretty cool. Here's the thing. If you're listening to this, you totally understand Evan's excitement in this passage simply because he got more loud and vulgar. And I wish you could have seen him because he's getting on the edge of his seat. Uh, but it was just funny. Just got, a little side note. I got goosebumps. It's so funny. It's great. All right. <laughs> and, then finally, and then finally, we arrive at, these are the poetic high points of the book. It's without a doubt, just the best the pure poetry that you see there is is the best, and it's Yahweh's replies to Job. Um, in his first speech, he sarcastically asks Job questions about the creation that he clearly does not have answers to. And when I say he clearly, that Job clearly does not have the answer to these questions. So um, again, imagine with Job, you give your summary defense, and your, your last words are essentially, I'm in the right, and God has wronged me. And then Elihu gives four speeches kind of taking apart your arguments a little bit. And in each one, and the reason there's four speeches and it's not just one monologue like Job's was, is 
it looks like Elihu gives space for Job to reply, and Job doesn't take him up on that. Because every speech starts with, and then Elihu answered and said, and then Elihu answered and said. Um, and so we think that basically Job is realized, just like Zophar was kind of shut up by Job, I think that Job is realizing that Elihu is right, and he's not answering him back. And that's then, interesting. And then finally, as all of this is happening, again, that's, sorry, that's that's pure conjecture on my part. Yeah, yeah. So, um, that's good clarity. But I, I think it's interesting because I don't think oftentimes we read poetic literature from scripture with the ability to pause and reflect and think about those things, which is what I think is so so important about the podcast and even this this specific one about the the, the context and content of Job. Um, just because like you you we read from one chapter to the next to the next to the next without stopping and thinking and considering what's really going on behind it. Um, and and even and even the picture of of the the descriptive uh, portion of Elihu's message that leads to God's response. I think that those are significant things. Um, and so I think it's really good, but it's definitely interesting to think about, uh, Elihu giving Job space and Job is just quiet. And he's not taking so, it. That's interesting. Um, and so, and here's the thing, Job's been waiting for this moment the whole time. All he's wanted, remember the thing yep. he's been crying out for is I want to stand before God and I want to make my case. And so now, now it's going to happen. He's already made his case and now God's response. Yeah, exactly. And so here's what I think is really interesting because the entire book has essentially been about why is Job suffering or to put it into kind of modern parlance, why are bad things happening to a good man? Um, And here's how God responds. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its banks sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and its thick darkness its swaddling band, and I prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and, and said, thus far shall you come come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and have caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold in the skirts off the earth and that the wicked shall be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and their and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know this. So if he wasn't shut up because of Elihu, he's definitely shut up right now. Can you imagine? (laughs) Like it's so literally Job is saying like, I'm in the right. God has wronged me. And God doesn't even address it. And I'm, I'm spoiling the rest of the replies, but I will. The, you can read through all of the replies of God. Yahweh never once addresses any of Job's questions. Um, he just talks about, <laughs> oh, like, and, th- and this part, I, I love sarcasm. It's one of my love languages. Um, it's literally, he's saying like, oh, Job, no, since you know so much about how to run the universe, tell me, where were you when I, when I created the world? I mean, since you know, what I should do when your situation, surely you must have been here the whole time. It's not like, it's not like you're just a man who would tell me the almighty creator of the universe, how to run the world. I, I know that's not the case, Job. So tell me where we're, and he goes through like the sea is a really important thing because um, it's the sea is the most dangerous thing that men perceive, but it was also a way to explore. So you went over the sea to places, but it killed people all the time. And in ancient Semitic, um, I shouldn't say Semitic because it's other cultures as well. It's like in the Babylonian creation myth, it's about the chaos god of the sea is defeated by the, I forgot the name, Marduk maybe, um, but defeated by the god of the Babylonians. And so there's a bunch of myths where the sea is kind of this, this chaos of the world and the gods fight against it. And it's this kind of prolonged battle. And then what God is saying here is because look at how he describes the sea. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb, when I made the clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band? He's describing the sea as a baby. Because he's saying, when the when the baby when ba- little, when little baby C came out of the womb, I wrapped it up in swaddling clothes. I prescribed limits for it. I said, "Hey, you can't go past here, C. 
I'm in charge. Like God is literally showing it's not a great battle between him and the sea. No, the sea is his creation. He controls the sea just as much as he controls anything else. Um, and so the, the speeches start off with this vast, just expanse of God's glory. Like he's talking about all of inanimate creation. And then he focuses in for the rest of his speeches, both speeches, he focuses in on beasts, which are creatures, animals, which is really interesting. Um, and so in his first speech, he talks about lions and ravens, mountain goats, donkeys, um, oroxes, I think is how you pronounce it, but basically wild oxen that went extinct in the 1600s, which, you know, bummer. Sad day. I know. Ostriches, which is a great little, uh, sorry, war horses, and then hawks and eagles. Um, and I love because it, he deals with a bunch of different things. So the lions is all about, can you hunt the prey of the lion? Like, can are you able to do that? Oh, no, you can't. Um, with ravens, it's talking about where they're able to get food. With mountain goats, he asks Job, have you ever seen a mountain goat give birth? Because what, what they do is they climb to the top of mountains and they give birth in secluded spots where not even predators can get to them. So Job would have to think like, you know, I've never thought about that before. I've never actually seen like a, a mountain goat give birth. And God's like, well, I know where it happens. Um, he talks about donkeys, which is fun. The oroxus, which is, just, you know, like I said, it's just a big wild ox. That was really, uh, meox is the wrong word. Maybe it's like a, no, ox is the right word. Anyway, sorry. Um, and then ostriches. I love this part because he's just, all he talks about is how stupid the ostrich is. It's <laughs> like the, when you read the chapter or not the chapter, the section, it, like it's God talking about like, look at all these glory of creation. Look at what I've created. Look how stupid the ostrich is, Job. I did that. I made the ostrich dumb because we're going to like it. And it's just talking about like, oh man, I looked up when I was writing, I looked up, um, because he, he talks about the ostrich's mating dance. And so I like, I, it's pretty interesting. Um, it's like this whole like waving the wings. And then the other, I think the female looks like Craig Kimbrell, which if you know who that is, you'll know what that looks like. If you don't know what that is, you're completely lost. But Google uh, listener, Google Craig Kimbrell pitching and then Google oh. an ostrich mating dance. And you'll be like, hey, that looks the same. So there you go. Um, and then he talks about war horses, which is the only domesticated animal that he talks about in this whole thing. Cause I, could, I should clarify with the donkeys. He's talking about wild donkeys. It's like the African wild ass, I think is the, is the uh, exact animal, but uh, the war horses, he talks about a domesticated animal, but there it's definitely not because like, Oh, they're so like in control by humans. It's about how they charge in without fear, like the mm -hmm. war horse. And it's true. Like horses, when they're trained, well, they just charge into, I shouldn't say like that's happening today, but like <laughs> when you read yeah. about it, um, you could train a horse to just charge into battle and be fine. Uh, and then finally it ends up with hawks and eagles, which are just two of the, I mean, we have them here in the Northwest and like, every, I mean, I've lived here for years and still when I see an eagle, I'll like Gorgeous. stop, I'll yeah. stop and like stare at it for a long time. Um, and so after this speech, he gives Job, he pauses and he gives Job a chance to respond. And so Job does. Uh, so then this is, so the start of chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am a man of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and will not answer twice, but will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, you are forgiven, my son. No, he said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it. So God like, so Job goes, all right, I, I, uh, I get I, it. I'm I not relent. Yep. I I'm, surrender. I'm of small account. I, what can I, what could I possibly say to you in light of all of your glory? I'm not saying anything else. And, and then Yahweh goes, ah, you still don't get it. Do you? All right, stand up. We're going round two. Here we go. Which, oh boy, terrifying. <laughs> like God's saying, God's saying, we're not done yet. Get ready. Um, and so Yahweh's second speech. He focuses on, instead of all of creation and a bunch of animals, he focuses on the two, what in his mind, which I guess if it's God's thing, then, then it's true, uh, the two greatest beasts of the area. And these are Behemoth and Leviathan, which, I mean, just killer names. Love it. Um, there's a few different interpretations of what this could be. Um, if you really, really want it to be dinosaurs, I'm not going to take that from you. I don't think it's dinosaurs, but like, you know, you, you do you. Um, it's definitely a cool thought. Um, it could be actual mythical creatures. And so, oh, sorry, I should, I should go back. I think there's a way that it is dinosaurs. Um, and the way that I would say it is that is it's God describing creatures that once roamed the earth 
that perhaps people were finding fossils of and bones of and wondering what on earth that could be. And then God saying, here's what it was, and then kind of describing behemoth and Leviathan. So that that is a way that it could happen. So I don't want to, I don't want to completely poo-poo it. Um, the other thing it could be is just full-on mythical creatures. And so like behemoth and Leviathan are just two great creatures in myth. And what God is saying, hey, I even have control over those mythical creatures that are so powerful, kind of like how God was saying, I have control over the waters. Um, he would be saying, I would have control over those things as well. Um, or, and this is where I probably land, it is the behemoth is either the hippopotamus or possibly the elephant, um, or and then the leviathan is the crocodile. Um, leviathan is crocodile is pretty uncontroversial. People are like, yeah, it lines up perfectly. The um, behemoth thing, there's one verse that causes all the, because it talks about how its tail um, sways like a great cedar. Well, if you've ever seen a hippopotamus, that's not exactly how it they works. Big tails. Yeah. They have big tails. So the thought is it could, even the same with an elephant. Yeah. The tails aren't massive. Right. So the thought with the elephant is it could be mistranslated and it trunk. trunk. Exactly. Um, and the thought with the hippopotamus is um, I should have thought about this. Like uh, it, you know, it's I don't know the phallus. I'll say is what it could be translated as, and so saying that that is swaying back and forth, and therefore that is what the hippopotamus is. So like a hippopotamus, a male hippopotamus, in in a. It's not heat. Is it must? Musk? I don't know. There's a, a season when male hippos are like, hey, it's time to time to have kids. So there you go. Um, anyway, that's probably what he's talking about. And he just goes through. I'm not, we're not going to read a ton from the second speech, but he really just talks about how, Job, if you think you're so powerful, tell me about how how would you handle behemoth? And then really what he does, he spends a, God spends a lot of time on Leviathan, so the, the crocodile, most likely the Nile crocodile, which I mean – Again, we don't really have we don't have a healthy appreciation for how terrifying wild animals are because we just don't deal with them. It's like it's true. Because like when I was um, researching for this, I we were in San Diego, and so I went to we went to the zoo, and there's the hippopotamus enclosure, and I just sat and I stared at it for like 15 minutes, and I was and it felt like forever. But because it it was almost as if it knew why I was there because I sat down and then it just came and sat right in front of me and like all of its glory. And I was like, this thing is huge. <laughs> like, <laughs> holy cow. Um, and then the crocodile, like imagine for a culture like Egypt, where your whole civilization is built around one river in the middle. And if that river doesn't exist, your na- your nation doesn't exist. And in that river, at any point, you could go in there for water and then a giant reptile could leap out of nowhere and kill you and drag you in. That is that is what the crocodile represents to the ancient person. And even today, like in Florida, like you kind of not, it's not nearly the same, but you get the idea with alligators where you hear like really terrible stories about people who like are visiting and they don't really understand like the water and like what to do there. And all of a sudden, like just a, a giant reptile comes out. But for the ancient people... This is, they had no choice but to go to the rivers. Mm-hmm. And then that's what was in the rivers. So, t- I mean, terrifying. And so what God is saying to Job is like, hey, if you're so powerful, if you know all of these different things, can you make Leviathan your pet? Which is kind of funny because I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, but he has this picture of, um, would you go out and grab a crocodile and then just bring it home to your daughters? And then now it's the family pet and you're all having fun and chilling with the Leviathan. Like, it's it's funny. <laughs> like, it's supposed to be like, obviously that's not what's going to happen. Um, again. Yahweh never once addresses any of Job's questions. And then here's how it ends. So this is the uh, beginning of chapter 42. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. There's that nugget I told you to keep for later. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. There he's quoting God. He's not saying, God, listen to me. I'll make it known to you. Uh, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I I repent in dust and ashes. So Job repents. And it's really, it's really interesting because again, God never once addresses any of Job's questions. All he does is reveal his glory to Job. And then Job was like, you know what? I was wrong. I, and I think it's it's a really power. I think this, it's just such a powerful message of the book is that we spend so much time talking about why is Job suffering? Why is mm-hmm. this happening? And then the answer ends up being that Job was asking the wrong question. 
because what Job should have been at talking, thinking about is who runs the universe. And then it's almost this, um, it's this trusting of God that if God is allowing these things to happen, which again is assumed throughout the book, for mm-hmm. the most part, they think like, yeah, God has allowed mm-hmm. this to happen. Then there must be a reason for it. And, and that's how it ends. I, think, I mean, sorry, the, the whole book doesn't end there. We, we have a little epilogue where it says, um, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are rebuked by Yahweh, which, you know, if you've been waiting for that, you get it. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> um, and I love that Yahweh says, I might forgive you, but Job's going to have to pray for your forgiveness, <laughs> which is also just great. Um, I love that Job does it. And so Job is very selfless and he prays for the forgiveness of his friends. After Job prays for forgiveness, his fortunes are restored to him, which I think is really interesting because um, it's not like Yahweh says, all right, you passed the test. Here's all your stuff back. Also pray for repentance. Job, still in the midst of pain and suffering, again, still scraping his skin with uh, pottery, is praying for the forgiveness of his friends who have wronged him so deeply. Um, well, another, I think even, sorry, it, when Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar rebuked, Elihu's left out of that. Right? Correct. That, that, yep. No Elihu. So it's not, Yahweh's not rebuking Elihu, which is really, really interesting. Yep. Um, because he, because Elihu has some of the potential of the pompous and arrogance as well. But I mean, you almost see this John the Baptist vibe with the way he's describing uh, the the storm, the impending storm, and then God mm-hmm. speaks out of that whirlwind, right? So, um, but I think that that's an interesting note too, is that Yah- Yahweh decides not to rebuke Elihu, which which I would suggest, and I think we've already talked about at one point before the podcast, um, that 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 just affirms some of what Elihu is saying is accurate right. and true. I, and that's where and I right. learned too, because God, there's there's no reason that he would be like, yeah, Elihu's completely wrong. But, but I'm not going to rebuke yeah, him. Yeah, you know, he, his heart's in the right place. <laughs> Down those other three, yeah, so I, I agree. I land on that being a pretty clear evidence that mm-hmm. at least some of what Elihu is saying was correct. Um, and here's what I think is interesting. And we, we never focus on this when we talk about Job. Um, those who abandoned Job come back and comfort him. So what that means is that Job is not out of grief. Hmm. So it's not that Yahweh just flips a switch and now Job is happy again. It's that... That's really good. Yeah. Job still has to walk through the trauma of losing everything and losing all of his children. Um, and so the hope of it isn't that like, hey, yeah, Job, you're magically better now. But now he has all those people where in chapter 29, he talks about, how, or I guess it's 30, where he talks about how they've abandoned him. Now they're back which I think is really cool. Uh, Job has seven sons and three daughters. So he has he gets back to 10 children in the same way. Interestingly, we're only told the name of his daughters, which I think is kind of special. That is really interesting. Yeah. So it's uh, it's Jemima, Keziah, and I can't remember the third one. So sorry, third daughter. But, Somethingaya. So, Somethingaya. Somethingaya, possibly. <laughs> um, but no, I think it's just, it's just really interesting. He names them all after beautiful things. I forgot exactly what they are, but they're... Um, hmm. Yeah, it's... it's I, it, yeah, it's just interesting. I mean, because I don't have a clear answer one way or the other as to why that would be, but clearly Job's daughters meant something. Um, and maybe it's just like as simple as like he names them after beautiful things because his daughters are beautiful and they're, rem- they're a reminder of the beauty of his life coming out of sadness in the same way that his daughters are a beauty coming out of the sadness of his of his mm-hmm. previous children, as, of the death of his previous children as well. So, but it's who beauty knows? from ashes, you might say. Yeah, exactly. And then the whole book of Job ends with one of my favorite lines in the Bible. It says in Job 42, 17, and Job died an old man and full of days. I love it. Yeah. That's such a... <laughs> well, I think it's, um, I mean, there's so much to the, the the book of Job, obviously. And I know that we've tried to do our due diligence, you know, Evan specifically tried to do the due diligence and giving us over the last four or five weeks, a really strategic deep dive. Um, but, I, but I think it's interesting to just stop and reflect for a moment about... Um, our situations or our circumstances in life. And, and Job navigated some very hard things. And I know that you even suggested that he was asking the wrong questions. Um, but the beauty of, uh, of this, this conversation that God, Yahweh had with Job, um, is, is the lament and the, 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 the crying out and honesty and a rawness to, to God in front of even Job's friends. Um, but God shows up and meets him and that's enough to where Job doesn't need his questions answered because God reveals I'm enough. And, and yeah, I think in one hand, when it comes to our circumstances, we, the, the, the question that we should also try and circle back to is who actually created, who is God? Right. Where is God in the midst of this? Not necessarily why is he punishing me, but 
God, you're sovereign. You're in control. You're you're the creator. I'm going to trust in you even in the midst of my circumstance. Uh, but God, I don't think God is, is, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but I don't think God is rebuking Job for the questions he's asking. I think God is rebuking Job for the lack of, of, of awareness of who he is. Right. Um, but at the same time, he, it's almost like while he doesn't answer Job's laments and questions and, 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 and call outs, if you will, because those don't matter. Mm-hmm. I, I think God is, is in his grace is like, these are not the things that matter because what matters is you understanding and rem- remembering me. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think for our, our daily circumstances or the things that we face in the trials, I mean, Job suffered for how many ever years? I think there's just some parallels. I even coming out of COVID and kind of Job's description of what his life was before and what it currently is. I think we can relate to that a bit, uh, not to the same degree, but just in life before COVID, the life in the midst of COVID. Now mm-hmm. we're coming out of COVID. There's something to be said about recognizing who God is. And uh, But I, I do, I would just simply suggest this is, is as we navigate different hardships and different trials in life, it's not to, to minimize our ability to lament and grieve and cry out to God, but to be patient enough for God to speak to us. Because I don't think we're always patient enough. Yeah. I think oftentimes we move on or give up because God is silent. And it's not that God is silent. God is allowing us to process and waiting for us to be silent mm-hmm. for him to speak back. And so there's just that tension for sure. But it's it's a deeply challenging book for sure. Yeah. It's, it's kind, of a, kind of a personal story. But it's in, and, and I wrote it into the, the book. So I guess it's not that personal. Not yet, but, at least. Um, no, so my, I remember when I was writing this and talking with my dad, he was talking about how, um, so my dad had um, cancer years ago. And so I remember like, you know, he called and I was living up here at the time. So it was kind of a whole crazy thing. Um, And he's fine now. But he was talking about how he was in the doctor's office. And when the doctor talked to him about it, it was this moment of just like, like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Like, this is crazy. And then he talks about how he remembers specifically just having peace rush over him and then just feeling like, you know what, whatever, whatever God is doing here is going to be good. And it wasn't, and he was saying like, it wasn't like I'm going to be healed for sure. It was just like, I know God's in control and I know that he's going to work this out for, for my good. Um, And I think ultimately that is the message of Job is we, when we say, God, I want to know why this is happening. The answer is, Maybe you get to, maybe, I shouldn't say eh, because it's not, that sounds really <laughs> passive. Um, but yeah. The it, answer is maybe you get to know, maybe you don't. What you do get to know and what we all get to know is that God is sovereign. God is in control. He loves us and we can trust him to always work things together for our good and his glory. Yeah. And the glory of God should be desired above all other things. And I think sometimes that's where we can fall short is we think to ourselves, oh, I'm, I'm totally fine with God being glorified as long as it doesn't really cost me anything. And I think with Job, Job glorifies God just as much as any other biblical character, um, or at least as, as much as most of them. Um, but it co- boy, it costs him everything for the time being. And, and yet, that is a good and healthy thing. And I think that's one of the perspectives is how much do we earnestly desire that God would be glorified in our lives? And are we willing to, are we willing to sacrifice to, to let that happen? Yeah. And I think that's kind of, it's, and that's a hard question. That's not like i I'm not standing here being like, yeah, give, take it all. God. Like, I'm like, <laughs> that's a really hard question for me to wrestle through as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just a, it's just a question of perspective for sure. Well, and that's, I mean, and that wraps up the book of Job. Uh, and, and obviously there's a ton. Uh, and, and I would encourage you over the next, you know, as you're reading through book, the Job or Job, and or as you come back to or circle back, like the, the beauty of our podcast is they're available uh, year over year. And so I would love for you to just even favorite these ones and be able to review them uh, at a later date as well. Uh, we're going to jump into very quickly the book of Psalms. We're going to reading 14 Psalms this week as well. Uh, but before we jump into there, I would love to take a moment and just simply say, uh, if you have enjoyed this podcast so far, we would love for you to stop. Uh, even while I'm talking about it, jump onto the Apple Spotify, 
or Apple or Spotify podcast app and just give us a review. Give us a five-star review. Uh, we're, we're seeing those ratings increase on Spotify. Thank you for that. We're seeing the, the podcast reviews on Apple podcast increase as well. We love and appreciate that. Uh, and would love for you to just leave us a five-star review and leave us a review. Uh, we'd love to be able to share it, not just online, but uh, with everybody, but also just it helps the algorithms and help us get grow this community of people listening to the Bible together. So we'd love for you to do that. Take a moment, leave us a review. Uh, as you do that, I'm going to jump into these 14 Psalms uh, and then I'll wrap us up and get us out of here. Uh, but we're starting in verse uh, Psalm 137 and we're reading all the way to 150 over this week. So Sick. Um, I'm going to do my best to be very concise and short uh, and work through this. I'll read one Psalm at the very end uh, because I think it's a good fit to, to close out this, this uh, podcast episode. Uh, but Psalm 137 is a community l- lament. Uh, and what is happening in the Psalm is they reflect and remember on the Babylonian captivity uh, and provide words which... Uh, the returning exiles can express their loyalty to Jerusalem and pray that God would pay out his just punishment on those who gloat over its destruction. Um, there is a very strong ferocity, for ferociousness, uh, that is well known at the end of the psalm, where it's this picture of the God's the call to see the the punishers, uh, babies be dashed upon the rocks. Um, and while Babylon was God's uh, instrument of judgment and tool of uh, to, to, to bring his people back to, to him eventually, they were a very cruel people. Uh, and so they were saying it's this uh, prime example of the, of the principle that the punishment should match the crime. That's the picture. Well, and you kind of see this in Habakkuk where it's Habakkuk kind of mirrors Job in a lot of ways where he's like, God, when are you going to do this? And God's like, hey, I'm raising up the Babylonians to do this right now. And then Habakkuk's like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> Wait well, a the Babylonians, let's talk about this. Pump the brakes. And then later on the book, he's like, hey, yeah, if you don't, they're going to get what's coming to them too. It's not like they're getting a free pass. So yeah. it's a it's a theme. Yeah. So you see that in Psalm 137 where the the, the, the prayer is that God would vindicate his people for their loyalty and, and gloat and those who gloat over Israel's destruction. Uh, so that's Psalm 137, which is a really fun way to start this week off. Um, Psalm 138 provides a way of offering thanks to God for the signs of his constant care. Uh, so it's just a reflection on and, and a, a celebratory, God, you're so faithful for the protection and care that you give us. Um, Psalm 139 is probably one of my favorite Psalms. Uh, and it's just this idea, the theme is simply that God's intimate knowledge of his people. Uh, this is a Psalm that talks about, search me and know me, you know when I sit, you know when I stand up, you understand my thoughts from afar. Uh, he talks about that there's nowhere that we can go that's out of God's presence. He sees you when you're sleeping. He, he knows, knows when you're awake. awake. He makes a list and checks. Oh, wait, no, sorry. I'm getting songs mixed. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm kidding about that. But uh, So Psalm 31 really talks about the intimacy. God knows us intimately and is present with us always. I mean, the, one of the biggest lines is verse 7. It's like, where can I escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And, 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 and so it's just this picture of the psalmist. I, I really do love it. This is actually a very poignant psalm for me in my journey of faith. Um, but that's Psalm 139. Psalm 140 uh, is an individual lament. And we get into these these laments over the next couple psalms. Uh, but the individual lament here serves uh, the needs of people that are under the threat from ungodly people who intend serious harm. Uh, it doesn't actually specify who uh, they are technically. It could be Israelites, but it could be another nation. Uh, but it is a lament of people who feel the threat uh, from ungod- the ungodly. Uh, Psalm 141 uh, is, again, an individual lament uh, geared to the situation much like Psalm 140. Uh, but the, the contribution that it adds to the lament is this earnest prayer for God to protect the faithful person against all insincerity and compromise among, amid such dangers. Uh, so in the midst of the, 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 the persecution or the midst of the trial or circumstance, they're praying for God to protect the, the one who remains faithful. Uh, so that's an added piece to Psalm 141. So Psalm 140, 141 kind of go hand in hand. Uh, Psalm 142 is an individual lament from David, actually, when he was in the cave, uh, which actually makes it a companion to Psalm 57. Uh, you'll you'll see in this psalm that there's the, uh, the notes of this faithful person's prayer, which is David uh, praying for protection from his persecutors. Uh, it's most likely referring to the instance where he's hiding out from Saul and his army as they pursue his, presume because they desire to kill him. Uh, Psalm 143, I know I'm rapid firing these things, but there's so many of them and I want to make sure we we wrap up as quickly as we can because of time. Uh, Psalm 143 is an individual lament geared towards uh, a situation which a person's troubles make him aware of his own sins, which is really, really poignant and and thought-provoking, is this lament that comes when we recognize our own sinfulness based upon the troubles and trials we face. Uh, Psalm 144 
is is a royal psalm, uh, which again is just referring to David and his and his king his kingship his Davidic line. Uh, asks this one asks for God to give victory to the reigning heir of David, uh, which will then in turn lead to continue the continued blessing of God's people. Uh, psalm one forty five. This is the last of the psalms of David. Uh, this is kind of the final one that he writes himself, uh, and it introduces the hymns of praise that finish the psalms out. Um, it specifically praises the Lord for his goodness, his generosity towards his creature, especially to his people, both corporate and also the individual. Uh, so David ends with his psalm writing with um, with praise and, and, and celebration of God's goodness. Uh, psalm 40, 146 uh, has a first and the last phrase that says, praise the Lord. This is similar to also Psalm 147 I'll get into in a second. Um, and so it just makes it clear that this the intent of this psalm is to lead God's people to praise him. Uh, the Lord's reign makes him a sure hope for God's suffering people. It's a good way to begin and end anything, really. Absolutely. Uh, and Psalm 147, again, does the same. It begins and ends with the idea of praise the Lord. Uh, but the praise here is focused on the gratitude for some great work of building up Jerusalem, uh, as well as for the creator who sustains his creation, his chosen people, as they depend on him. So again, another way to praise. Uh, and then we get the, the, the final few psalms is just their hymns of praise. You know, Psalm 148 calls on God's creatures to join in praising him. Uh, from heavenly hosts to the heavenly bodies. God's favor for Israel is put in a larger context uh, of his plan to bring light to all of mankind through Israel. Uh, so it's just a call to praise God for who he is and what he's done. Psalm 149, again, is a praise of a hymn of, song, a hymn of praise, my goodness, um, that calls on God's people to praise the Lord for their special privileges. Now, this is interesting because in particular, we see Psalm 148 recalls the benefits that the whole world will one day receive through God's work on behalf of his faithful Israel. Psalm 149 ends by calling to mind the expectation that the faithful will one day be God's agent, agents of judgment through the world. Uh, and so it's the celebration of uh, being God's people and the, not just the responsibility, it's the ambassador's picture as we think about the New Testament uh, connection point, but the idea that we're ambassadors, there's responsibilities and roles that we're called to play with the world at large. Uh, and so Psalm 149 is again, praising God for who he is, but also their call as his people and what that entails. And part of that is the, the, the idea of judgment throughout the world. They're going to be caught part of God's judgment uh, throughout the world. And then finally, Psalm 150, and this is the Psalm I want to read. Uh, it's six verses, but it's the, it's the, it's the close of, uh, of the Psalter, uh, the writer with what's called for everything that has breath to praise the Lord. Um, with every kind of jubilant accompaniment, music, dancing, all of these things. It's it's indicative there should not be anybody or anything that's not in motion, whether it's an instrument being played or it's dancing being happening. The, the picture happening in this psalm is it's this continual motion, uh, a movement of rejoicing and jubilation. Um, the psalm may have been intended for some particular liturgical use, meaning uh, there might have been an intended use for religious purposes, uh, festivals or whatever, but it also, because of its placement in the book of Psalms, it also serves as the final doxology of the whole book. So it wraps up the entirety of the whole book. And if, you, if, you, if we didn't talk about this, I'm pretty sure we did when we first talked about Psalm 1 and 2, those two psalms set up the entirety of the book of Psalms. And then Psalm 150 ends the entire book of Psalms. So it takes the collective work of all the different Psalms and, and bookends them in a very strategic fashion. So this is what Psalm 150 says. It says, hallelujah, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his, in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his powerful acts. Praise him for his abundant greatness. And if I could pull an Evan for a moment and just stop to think about the music, the instruments, all of the people dancing and rejoicing in jubilant celebration. That's what's going on as these, these words are being read. It's a massive, joyous party. That's a cool picture, yeah. Um, and so that's what's happening. So all of these instruments. So it says in verse 3, it says, praise him with the trumpet blast. So you can almost imagine a trumpet blast in that moment. Praise him with the harp and lyre, almost like a solo focus on the harp and lyre. There's this massive movement of music and people dancing and celebrating. Uh, I picture my my two-year-old daughter, my five-year-old son right now, when I play certain music and, and they'll be listening to music, they'll start dancing. And they dance like kids do, and it's super cute and fun, which makes me as an adult be able to dance like a kid without problems. But it's this movement and this rejoicing, and it's all to praise God. Uh, and, it's, and it says praise God in the sanctuary. It starts off with that. But it is this, this massive, and it's not necessarily just like the temple, but it's understanding even as Job and God presents this case, 
I created the world. I built it from the from nothing to something. And I've heard like the world has been created as the temple with which the image of God is placed because that's what a temple is for. You put the image of a God in it. We carry God's images as humanity. So when he placed us in creation, it's this beautiful, beautiful picture of all of God's glory being revealed and focused on creation. So this idea of a sanctuary, there's this massive worship celebration and joy. Uh, it says, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and flute, praise him with resounding symbols, praise him with clashing symbols. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And that's the end of the book of Psalms. Uh, so it's it's such a powerful way to, to, to stop and to see the entirety of the book of Psalms come to an end. Now, we're still going to be reading Psalms throughout the year, but it's in this moment we take we take a bookend or we take the final bookend to review and visit over the last 14 Psalms this beautiful picture of worship and joy and jubilation. And so I thought it was a fun way to end the, end the, the conversation on Psalms. Ooh, love it. And that's a, that's a good place to end this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, as a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other podcasts and resources and future podcasts. They're coming. Uh, they're coming. Uh, on our website, grove.church. And also, if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially support the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There is a give button in the upper right-hand corner. But hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great day, and hopefully we'll see you soon.